It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg. This is another exciting episode of the Remnant Podcast brought to you by uh, The Dispatch, our new fledgling uh, media empire. Uh, You can sign up for it at thedispatch.com where you can get the G file on the morning dispatch and now the new David French twice a week newsletter. And come January, we will have all sorts of more exciting things at the website. Uh, this week's episode, or I keep saying this week, but I do it twice a week. Today's episode is uh, brought to you by the Online Trading Academy. We'll talk about more about that in a little bit, but let's get started. So you may have noticed if you found yourself listening to this podcast and cutting yourself or eyeing that toaster longingly as you go into the bathtub, uh, that things have been a little gloomy around here. So we thought we would come up with a an antidote to the... Uh, the crushing morosity of uh, this podcast of late by um, bringing in someone who is an antidote to all of the gloom and doom, not just of this moment, but really of the uh, last, uh, I don't know, century or so. And that's my friend, uh, Marion Tupi of the Cato Institute. He's the editor of Human Progress. And tell me your other title here. Senior policy analyst with the Center for Liberty and Prosperity at Cato. Okay. So uh, listeners have probably already noticed uh, the mellifluous accent of our guest. You are originally from Slovakia? I was born in what used to be communist Czechoslovakia, and I grew up in Africa and uh, Britain. Okay. And um, were you, so you were born when it was still Czechoslovakia? Absolutely. In yes. the... In the Slovak part, the which Slovak. is, uh, I believe, your beloved comes from there. Uh, yeah. Her, her family. Her family. My father-in-law comes from Slovakia, yeah. and um, I spent some time in Prague as a youth when it was still Czechoslovakia. And um, one of the things I always remembered was that the... Whenever, because it was during the Yugoslav civil war and there's all this breakup stuff going on. And I would always ask the Czechs, you know, are you guys going to have a civil war and fight the Slovaks to keep them in? And they all looked at me like I had six heads. They're like, <laughs> I'm going to shoot somebody to keep those guys? No. You know, and the Slovaks sort of had the same attitude, right? And it was, it was, yeah, a, I, as breakups go, it was pretty oh, friendly. It was, yeah, it was great. I think that the, 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 the Czechs were, um, ready to see us go partly because, um, we held back the economic reforms, which Václav Klaus right. wanted to implement in the Czech Republic, um, and um, so they were they were okay with it. And the reason for that was that Slovakia is mostly was more uh, rural, more agricultural, and statist, and statist. in in uh, in uh, outlook. Uh-huh. Uh, so the extent of economic reforms which the Slovaks were willing to countenance was uh, 
um, was lesser than what Klaus was getting ready to uh, to implement in the Czech Republic. Is there some fascinating tidbit of history as to why the Slovaks were more statist? Is it some vestigial thing from the Austro-Hungarian Empire? Oh, absolutely. I, I have no doubt about it. So uh, Czechs were part of the Austrian side of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. So they were heavily, um, heavily industrialized. Uh, they were they had a massive uh, intellectual class uh, mm-hmm. in in terms of uh, intellectual output um, and, um, and and quite liberal in right. their outlook sort of a Viennese outpost in a lot of ways uh, that yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, although the Czechs wouldn't like that no 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 <laughs> I, I know that there's yeah. a lot of anti-Austrian animosity there but uh, the Slovaks were basically a rural part of uh, of Hungary uh, which itself was quite rural right and um, we were just a Slovak speaking part of Hungary and um, so um, so so yeah yeah I remember when I was living in Prague and the Already the Czechs were very, very eager to be Westerners compared to a lot of parts of Eastern Europe. And I remember one guy, I got into a conversation with him and being a ingenue, didn't know where the landmines were for the various grievances that existed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, he asked me at one point, he says, where do you think Prague is? And I said, I don't know, it's uh, Eastern Europe. He says, where do you think Vienna is? And I said, I don't know, Central Europe, maybe Western Europe. And he, was, he shouted at me, Vienna's 200 miles east of here. <laughs> that's right. That's right. So. The, the additional two aspects I should probably mention, although this is getting us away from our subject, is that uh, Slovaks, were, uh, Slovaks are much more enamored with pan-Slavism. Mm-hmm. Um, so th- they are sort of feeling a little uneasy of being uh, part and parcel of the Western culture. They're, right. they're, they're still sort of have one foot planted in the in the Slavic um, Eastern Dom, if you will. Mm-hmm. And also uh, Slovaks are much more religious than the Czechs. So right. those were the basic fo- uh, you know, fault lines, fault, yeah. fault lines, lines of discord. Yeah. Okay, so tell us about um, human progress with quotation marks in terms of what you're doing and also human progress mm. without quotation marks. Well, I think let's start at the beginning in, in about, uh, as you know, we, we had a massive uh, crisis, economic crisis, especially in advanced countries in 2008, 2009. And right about that time, Matt Ridley decided to come up, uh, come out with his book, uh, The Rational Optimist. Right. Quite a time to publish it. And I read it and I was totally, um, you know, I was amazed. Yeah, it's a great book. Yeah, it's a great book. Um came out in 2010. And as a policy analyst, I knew that I was supposed to have a basic understanding of all the different long-term trends, life expectancy, literacy, education, and so on and so forth. So I knew that those things were getting better. But the the book was filled with fascinating statistics on the price of light, for example, right. and, and things like that. Which, needless to say, has has declined massively by something like almost close to one hundred percent in in the last uh, in the last few hundred years, and and I thought, well, it would be great to put these stats online so that more people can be aware of it. And right about the same time, the World Bank opened up its uh, database to public use. Graphics got better. And so I thought, well, let's uh, let's create a website devoted to the promotion of not necessarily an optimistic view of the world, but a realistic view of right. the world. And funny enough, a lot of people, well, not a lot of people, but other people have thought about 
about doing the same thing. Ma Max Roser at Oxford mm -hmm. started Our World in Data right about the same time. Uh, Hans Rosling started to make his videos at about the same time. So, so a lot of people saw a uh, confluence of different things that were coming together and made uh, data available for general public more available and more interesting. Yeah, so for listeners who don't know, it's humanprogress.org, right? Correct. And Mary and I first met on a Liberty Fund conference, which it's very hard to explain what Liberty Fund conferences are about, so we'll just <laughs> skip that part. But um, uh, humanprogress.org is a fantastic tool, particularly for like college students, journalists, grad students, that tracks an enormous number of trend lines over as long a period of time as you can get, right? Precisely, yes. And it shows how people are getting healthier, they're living longer, all of these things. And while it's not, as you say, it's not necessarily opt it's supposed to be just the rosy scenario stuff, it turns out that reality is much rosier than people think. That's right. Which is an important function to play. And so when I was working on my book, uh, gloomily titled Suicide of the West, uh, Jack and I reached out to Marion to have him help us with the data. And the appendix in my book, which charts a lot of ways in which America and the West in general is getting better, and I argue thanks to liberal democratic capitalism, a lot of that stuff either comes directly from human progress or human progress pointed us in the direction to get a lot of that yeah, stuff. It was a pleasure to help you with that. Yeah. No, great it was book. Great. Great it book. saved us an enormous amount of time. Little did I know at the time that that Steven Pinker was working on a book that would mm -hmm. do what we did in an appendix for 400 pages, yeah. but, you know, so be it. Um, so give me a general sense about, uh, you know, when people say everything's getting worse, as I sometimes want to do, give me your, when you're, when you're trying to talk to, a, say, a college student and explain to them that things are not as gloomy as they seem, what, what do you focus on? Well, it's more difficult to do it with college students or any students for the matter because people no longer study history. And uh, that's a problem because if you don't have even the most basic understanding of what the world looked like in the past, um, it's it's difficult to explain to you how lucky you are, how fortunate you are to be living today and uh, how how grateful you should be to live today. But the basic outlines of the story of the last 250 years or so is that Life expectancy, uh, let's take the most important thing uh, in terms of human progress. I mean, if you're not alive, then what's what's the what's the point of it all? Right. Uh, life expectancy for hundreds of thousands of years was anywhere between 25 and 30 years. As late as 1900, in the richest parts of the world, uh, life expectancy was only 50 years. Mm. Uh, today, it is 80 years in rich countries. It's 88 years in Japan and sort of the outliers. But uh, it is 70 years, over 70 years in uh, in the developing countries. So they have caught up uh, very quickly. They're catching up uh, with the advanced countries and uh, people are basically living much longer than they used to. Uh, income per capita, uh, since you're going to live that long, you might as well enjoy it. So, as you know, from Madison data, from Deidre McCloskey, people lived at a subsistence level of about $2 per person per day, again, for millennia. And then uh, beginning in the uh, 19th century, um, incomes per capita sta started to skyrocket. Uh, today, global average GDP per person uh, Per day is um, so uh, is is dollars. Mm -hmm. um, so um, and in the United so, States, it's about what? Oh goodness, um, I, I think it's well over a hundred dollars uh -huh. if you do GDP per capita. Mm -hmm. um, now, 
um, that means that uh, in terms of uh, real uh, standard of living, because all of this data is adjusted for inflation, mm -hmm. uh, globally people are roughly 20 times as well off as they were in, uh, in 1800. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and again, you know, Dedra and many other people talk about the hockey stick of prosperity. Right. So uh, you have this long, flat shaft where nothing changes. Basically, humanity is stagnant in terms of its living standards. And then in 1800, things just, you know, you've got that upward blade and uh, things improve in life expectancy in income per capita. Now, income per capita is actually kind of, kind of important because uh, having economic growth and having more money allows you to buy all sorts of good things in life. Mm -hmm. It allows you to buy better sanitation um, so that uh, you, can, you can separate uh, humanity and uh, uh, animals from, from waste. Mm -hmm. Um, that in itself has a positive effect on life expectancy. Life expectancy is enhanced through better medical facilities. That's and of course, quality of life. Quality of life and, yeah. and, uh, and of course, education. Um, because um, the way you get to education is by basically taking children off the land from agricultural labor and uh, putting them in schools. So until 200 years or so ago, the, the calories produced on the farm were so little mm -hmm. that you needed every available pair of hands to produce enough food for the family to survive. But after agriculture becomes much more productive, technology, artificial fertilizer, and so on, you can take the children away from the land and put them in schools. And before you know it, you've got a, uh, you've got a global literacy rate of 90% or so. So I want to get to... Um the sort of more philosophical and political consequences of all of this in a little bit, but I want to—I just want to cover the, the the data part of it first. A couple of methodological kind of questions on the life expectancy thing. One of the things you often hear from people is well, that's misleading because you're averaging in very high infant mortality rates, mm -hmm. and if you can get past the age of five, people lived a long time. That's not actually true, is it? Um, I mean, I, I, obviously, it does bring down the average life expectancy, but there weren't a whole. There wasn't a whole class of happily living old people. Eighty, eighty-five year olds right. somewhere. Right. Uh, no, I mean, it would have been a fraction of uh, of of the number of old people in uh, in the West today. I mean, you can just look at uh, the World Bank data and look at uh, advanced countries and population over the age of sixty-five, and it's been definitely uh, increasing uh, massively, uh, especially over the last uh, fifty or sixty years or so. So. Uh, Sure, I, I, I get that, mm -hmm. what people say about um, uh, infant mortality. After all, you know, one-third of the babies who were born alive died before their first birthday. Uh, however, to be in your 80s uh, was, uh, or even in your 70s, it was, it was very rare. You remember that? And that's probably pretty hard. And, and uh, <laughs> you know, in terms of quality of life, right? yeah, you were probably blind, without teeth, uh, yeah. that sort of thing. Um, you remember that film, uh, Lion in Winter? Uh, yeah, with yeah. Peter O'Toole yeah. and when he plays King Henry II, I believe, and when he says, "I'm uh, fifty, I'm alive, and I'm a king," you know, <laughs> like, <laughs> uh, you know, you don't, you don't get mad. Yeah, I also, those. I also never really understood why people thought that this was such a great debating point in the first place. It's like it's pretty bad when 
a third of babies die before their first year. I mean, even if it does create some statistical, you know, uh, distortions in, in your picture of the past, lots of children dying is a bad thing in and of itself. Well, people always think that they will be, that they would have been, or that they will be a part of that elite right. that somehow always ends up being on the upside of life. Right, right. You know? It's sort of like these people who believe in reincarnation and they always think that they were a <laughs> Japanese princess or, you know, some famous some famous philosopher when in reality, you know, just as a matter of math, sort of a Rawlsian thing, likely they were shoveling manure exactly. in some, on, on the shtetl or wherever, you know? Exactly, yeah. Okay, and so, you know, this point, the McCloskey hockey stick point, I make it all the time. Yeah. It's a big part of my book. It's a big part of my speeches about the... 250,000 years of, of, I would say, less than $3 a day because there is some mm, yeah. play in those numbers, right? But it, it depends also which you are using. You are using $2,010, are you using $1990. Right. Yeah. But the point I always make is that um, this is not a controversial point among economists, anthropologists, sociologists. There's a, I mean, people will quibble about, you know, how much – there was a deviation from the norm in ancient Rome for a little while or whatever. But there's a broad consensus about this basic point about like for most of humanity's time on earth, they lived at least since the agricultural revolution. We can get into that argument in a second. Everybody was basically poor, including rich people in a certain sense, right? I mean, but this $3 a day thing is there are not people, there aren't people who really quibble with that, are there? Um, I, I don't think so. Uh, some people might say that people didn't really need money um, because they grew their own food, and that's uh, well. If they if they did, I mean, if right. if if they had a bad harvest and the entire family or entire village died. Now, when it comes to the hockey stick, nobody's suggesting that there weren't uh, ups and downs, that there right. weren't little uh, what is called efflorescences of right. economic growth. Uh, of course, they were, but they always returned to the mean as the Malthusian trap persisted uh, over the millennia. And so you might have a spike like uh, in uh, 13th century Europe, uh, a spike in prosperity followed by a complete catastrophe and, mm. uh, um, uh, um, yeah, and disaster. But if you step back, then, then the path does look very, very flat indeed. Right. Yeah. And just because it's a small obsession of mine, I criticize Malthusians all the time. Mm -hmm. You know, the Paul Ehrlich crowd and all yeah. that kind of stuff. But it's a little unfair to Malthus himself because retrospectively, he was kind of right. He was right retrospectively. Yeah. yeah. He just could not anticipate the massive gains that would come from technological innovation, from um, improvements in agriculture and all of the rest. But if it's sort of like that past performance doesn't predict future gains for stock market stuff. But if you were writing when Malthus was writing, it was a really very insightful thing to point out was that we were going to be trapped by the limited resources available to us. As a historian, um, he he described what what came before the 19th century. Uh, but funny enough, you know, he and Marx are very similar in, in the following way is that Marx was writing about the pauperization of the working class right at the time right. when uh, the working class was beginning to see a massive liftoff and appreciation in their standards of living. And uh, Malthus was writing at, at a time when the world was about to change because instead of Malthusian trap, uh, humanity progressed into the age of innovation. Right. So in terms of 
big questions of in economic history, uh, the the one that stands out and that we always go back to is what made the last 200, 250 years so different from all the time that preceded it. Uh, Malthus was in the middle of it. He was in the country where it happened. He just couldn't see it. Yeah. It's, it's a funny sort of irony because that's true of a lot of these people. I think it was Henry Hazlitt had a great review of this book by Charles and Mary Beard about how terrible the 19th century was and the economics of sort of of 19th century capitalism. And Hazlitt pointed out that like over the course of Beard's lifetime, the standard of living for people <laughs> just exploded. And then, but people and, and Paul Ehrlich too. I mean, I think Ehrlich got a lot of obviously is a more of an outlier, but these people who make these straight line projections into the mm-hmm. future, they tend to to do it at precisely the moment where they're about to be really proven badly wrong. Same thing with Marx. Um, yeah. Uh, the 19th century, you've got the counter-enlightenment. You've got the, uh, you've got the, the romantics creating a myth about life on the farm prior to, prior to industrialization right. and the worship of nature. Was of course a big part of it, um, precisely but, because so few people were connected to it anymore. So you get nostalgic about what it was like for your parents, your imagined glory years of your parents or your grandparents, when in reality, it was a lot of hard work. Yeah. And then uh, when it comes to early, by the way, I, I just started uh, last year the Simon Project, which looks at the prices of natural resources. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, basically continuing in Simon's work. Mm-hmm. For those people who don't know, the listeners who don't know. Uh, it was Ehrlich and Simon who had that great wager between right. 1980 and 1990, what would happen to the price of uh, resources. And uh, Ehrlich made a perfectly commonsensical point. If global population is going to increase and resources are stable, then we are going to see resources increase in price and we are going to see uh, greater scarcity of resources. And Simon said, not so fast. Uh, he bet Ehrlich that uh, resources would decline in price because humanity would innovate its way out of uh, scarcity and uh, bring about gl- greater plentitude of uh, resources. He was right. Uh, we have revisited... I mean, just to explain, because this is a sort of another obsession of mine. I knew Julian Simon a little bit. Oh. Uh, I worked for a guy named Ben Wattenberg, and they oh, were sure. friends. Yeah, yeah. And Ben was another sort of in your tradition. He wrote a book called The Good News is the Bad News is Wrong and picked a lot of fights with Ehrlich. And anyway, so the bet that Julian made was he told Ehrlich, pick, was it any 10 commodities? Uh, five commodities, five commodities. Uh, over a period longer than one year. Right. So, so Ehrlich took, I think it was zinc and uh, tungsten and I can't remember the others. Yeah. And uh, he selected a 10-year period. And they bet like $1,000 and mm-hmm. if – and the the winner would get the value of those commodities at the end of ten years. That's right. And and Julian took the under. Right. His bet was that these things would get cheaper. Mm-hmm. And a couple of them did go higher, but basically Julian won the bet. And Ehrlich, I don't want to get too. We're already pretty deep in the weeds and the the, the technical stuff. But Ehrlich is what uh, some people, some experts in the field call a real dick. And he. Um, uh, he only would refer to Julian Simon as a direct mail marketer. Yes, and uh, and he had he he made he he was really peevish. He tried not to pay him, and then there was something where uh, I can't remember. He had someone else write the check or something. I mean, it was like a really kind of like sore loser. Kind yeah, of. well, there, there was no letter. I think the check came from uh, f- from him. But but yes, he was sniping at at yeah. uh, 
at uh, Simon in the most ad hominem yeah. ways. Uh, but anyhow, the, the point here is that Ehrlich is still alive right. and he's making the same arguments. And so we decided to revisit um, the, the natural resource um, issue. We looked at 50 commodities as tracked by the World Bank and the IMF. We mm-hmm. didn't, uh, you know, we didn't pick um, any of those. Uh, and uh, we looked at the prices. And what we discovered was that between 1980 and 2018, in terms of earning power of individuals, natural resources became 70% cheaper, mm-hmm. whilst global population increased by 70%. Right. So that gave us another idea, which is to create what we call the price elasticity of population, try to estimate the exact relationship between the population and prices. And we, we basically have come to the conclusion that 1% increase in global population decreases the prices of commodities by 1%. Which is a profoundly counterintuitive. Totally counterintuitive. Right. And that's the power of innovation. There's this. Um, I was listening to the a recent Econ Talk podcast. I don't want to mess up his name. McAfee, Andrew McAfee. Yeah, yeah from got, MIT. Yeah, yeah. And he's got this this book out with this thesis. So I want to get him on uh, about the dematerialization mm-hmm. of society. And, and he, as I gather it, basically just counts molecules. And we're we're literally as we get richer, using less and less physical stuff. Yeah. And in the American economy, the trend lines are. It's, the point is the counterintuitive point is that it's not we're using less stuff as a percentage of how much stuff we use. We're literally using fewer materials than we were thirty years ago, even as population increases and as we get richer. You know, the paper is a good example. We don't use wood for as much stuff anymore. We don't use it for paper. We don't use it for railroad ties. We don't use it for construction as much. And so we're just we're literally using less tree than we were yes. thirty years ago, even as our population increases. And it's true. He went and looked at BLS, and uh, apparently it's um, not BLS, Bureau of Mines and Mineral, whatever. And almost every material except for plastic, which is still it's now tied to population, but almost everything else, the total aggregate amount of stuff we use has been going down, which is really wildly counterintuitive mm. when you think about it. So I'm, I'm looking forward to reading his book. Uh, we have been in touch uh, yeah. in recent months, but uh, another good example would be, of course, agriculture. Right. Uh, we are because the yields in agriculture are have increased so massively. We are able to Americans are able to f- feed the entire population of the United States and export to the rest of the world with 1.5 percent of the population employed on the farms, and uh, we are able as a humanity uh, to to protect more and more of our. Um, uh, of our territory for animals uh, mm-hmm. in terms of protected areas and also of the marine areas. Um, if uh, Jesse Asobel from Rockefeller University um, has estimated that if the, the average farmer in the world becomes as productive as the American farmer, then we can return an area the size of India back to nature. Mm-hmm. So that gives you a sense of uh, what we are doing and how far we have to go and what are the pot- potential benefits of increasing productivity. Right. And increasing I mean, increasing productivity is a euphemism for making poor people richer, right? I mean, that basically what it boils down to is the richer the world gets, the more natural resource, more nature becomes a luxury that you want to protect rather than a, a resource you want to exploit. Yeah, we want to decouple the economy from, from nature to, right. to the maximum extent possible. 
Um, okay, before we get back into the weeds on this, give the example you mentioned it briefly before the um, the example of of hours worked to produce light. Can you mm-hmm. just sort of talk about that trend line for a second? Um, so this goes back to a paper published by uh, uh, Nordhaus, the mm-hmm. Nobel Prize winning economist from last year, I believe. Um, and I think that uh, his estimate was that uh, um, in the era of fire, when you basically needed to collect all the firewood in order to produce a thousand lumen hours of light, um, it took something like uh, 50 hours of work. Mm-hmm. And by 1992, uh, that decreased to two cents. Mm-hmm. Um, so that that's a 99.9% decrease. That, that That's where you sort of arrive at infinity where basically things right. become dirt cheap. Yeah, I mean it's it's um it's there's that great scene in uh, Castaway with Tom Hanks where he's been on a marooned on an island for 5 years and then he comes back and he's in his motel room or something and he's just and a big chunk of the movie is all about him just trying to figure out how to light a fire, yeah. you know, and then and then he uh has a light switch and he's just flipping it on and flipping it off and looking at how easy it all is. Yeah. We don't, we just don't appreciate the extent to which there are so many things we take advantage, we take for granted that used to, you know, when you put a slab of butter on a piece of toast, you forget that it once took someone like eight hours of churning butter to make the butter that you just grab out of the fridge. I mean, and that's the resource I think that people take for granted the most is just our time. You know, yeah. we've become so rich with time that used to be occupied by just trying to stay alive. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, you don't want to fall into the you – know, you don't want to be one of those old fogies who constantly says, you know, you, you guys, you, the new, new generation, you are ungrateful. You don't understand how uh, how well you are off. But it just happens to be true. <laughs> and uh, and the, the the reason, the, the most fundamental reason why we have started the uh, human progress is not just to enlighten the public about how well they are doing compared to the past, but also if people don't understand or if they, if they believe that the world is going to hell, mm-hmm. then there is no reason for them to defend – the economic and the political underpinnings of modernity. Right. So if, if, if the world is, as I think you and I would agree, dominated to a large extent by some form of free enterprise, you know, maybe some countries are more economically free than others and so on, but there are very few North Koreas where you have central planning. In most places, the price mechanism works, there is competition, and there's some form of free enterprise. And then if the world is also dominated by some form of representative government, mm-hmm. and I know that there has been some backsliding, but still two-thirds of humanity live in countries which are more democratic than they are authoritarian. Mm-hmm. So if this is the world that we live in and you believe it's going to hell, then what's the point of defending these institutions? You might as well opt for whatever is the alternative. Um, you know, so you might opt for socialism or communism or fascism or Nazism. Those are the alternatives. And uh, and I don't want to, I don't want to lose uh, liberal economic and political institutions because it is my belief, having studied this for now many many years, that it was the. Um, liberalization of political and economic institutions which brought about economic growth 
and, and modernity in the first place. Right. Um, I want to pick up on that in just a second, but first we should hear from our sponsor. So one of the things that has generated enormous prosperity uh, for really all of humanity is effective financial markets. And one of the things that uh, allows you to take advantage of financial markets is financial literacy and understanding how things like the stock market actually work. And that brings me to the Online Trading Academy. Let's be honest, most people weren't taught how to invest in school. And if you're like me, you've probably wondered, why does Wall Street seem to win so consistently? Or how, how do I do more than just buy and hold? Online Trading Academy wants you to start knowing now. As a leader in investing and trading education, Online Trading Academy teaches people just like you a step-by-step process designed to help you make the right moves in the financial markets. You'll discover common investor mistakes, learn about risk management skills, and how to develop a personal income and wealth education plan. It's simple to get started. OTA's flexible learning style lets you take classes at one of their more than 40 financial education centers or in an online classroom from the comfort and convenience of your own home. Students have given Online Trading Academy a 94% satisfaction rating based on more than 190,000 reviews. No one will ever care more about your financial future as much as you do. So now is the time to start learning how education can help you take better control of your financial future. From now on, a strong economy is the best time to prepare for a bad one. So... Sign up for a three-hour free introductory class on at otatrade.com slash dingo. That's otatrade.com slash dingo. That's a free class in your area. Register at otatrade.com slash dingo. You'll even receive their professional insider's kit just for attending. That's otatrade.com slash dingo. Begin taking control of your financial future today with no obligation. Um, all right, so picking up on the point that you just brought up, uh, this is one of the things that people have heard me rant about a great deal. Um, I have a bit of a fixation with Tom Friedman. It, it used to border on an obsession, not that I followed him around in a gray Buick with garbage <laughs> lining my trunk or anything, but I, he, in the late 90s, he, in the early 2000s, he would write these columns worshiping the what he what he would sometimes refer to i think as the uh authoritarian capitalism mm-hmm. of china mm-hmm. and it was this idea very much in vogue much like the early part of the 20th century which i've written about a bunch that um you that countries that have authoritarian leadership can have what he would always call optimal policies and that's why there's one of the reasons why he had a chapter called China for a Day. Yes. And this used to drive me crazy. I always used to say to college students, it's like the authors of the Federalist Papers, they had all this great stuff about checks and balances and democracy and small r and small d, republicanism and democracy. And all of that was great for two hundred for 364 days a year. But it'd be just so much more awesome if we could have one one day a year called Tyranny Day, because that way we could have really good policies. <laughs> and... The thing is, is that so people like China, sort of like you know uh, Lincoln Steffens in the in the 30s and all those guys, they looked at people like Friedman looked at China, and China switched to markets as a last resort, right? In what 78, 79, 78, yeah. And 
when I say last resort, I mean, it was really a last resort. First, they killed 60 million of their own people. And when that didn't work, they're like, all right, let's try markets. And boom, hundreds of millions of people are lifted out of poverty. They can eat meat for the first time. They can live indoors with electricity for the first time. And people like Friedman look at it and they say, wow, it must have been the authoritarianism. Mm. And, and it drives me crazy. But this sort of sets up, you know, this moment that we have now on the right, which I know Cato is sort of like Casablanca and all <laughs> Stays aloof from much of these sorts of things. But um, uh, uh, there is this new push that, you know, there's the Patrick Deneen, why liberalism failed. Mm-hmm. There's the Hazoni stuff about nationalism. There's the whole David French versus Sorabamari stuff. There seems to be this... We've known that the left abandoned the gratitude for liberal democratic capitalism a long time ago, at least the serious left. But it's now spreading on the right to a remarkable degree, and at least among a certain group of intellectuals. And so I'm starting to wonder whether or not, you know, you say if you don't convince people things are going, if you can't convince people the world's not going to hell, then they're going to give up on the model that got them to where we are. What is your theory that explains this uh, explosion of pessimism about classical liberalism? Well, before I get there, uh, the part of the problem is, of course, that, again, nobody studies history and nobody is aware of the basic data. Right. Um, earlier this year, I went uh, back to government records going back to 1919, mm-hmm. and I looked at the federal government records concerning uh, prices of food uh, in the United States. I came up with 50 items, I think, thereabouts. And I translated that into what I call time prices, but it basically all it means is you take the nominal wage of an unskilled laborer in America in 1919, and then you compare it to, um, the, the, then then you compare it to the price of a of a food item, steak, um, tea, coffee, whatever. And I did the same exercise for 2019. So mm-hmm. I did it for 100 years, right? I took. 1919 food prices relative to wages. Then I took 2019 uh, food prices relative to wages. The same items, Mm -hmm. the same quality, the same uh, quantity. Mm. And needless to say, uh, in all of those cases, uh, prices have fallen sometimes substantially. Just give you the the most uh, impressive one. A blue-collar worker can now afford 38 eggs for the same amount of time that it would have taken him to buy one egg mm. in 2019, mm-hmm. okay? Uh, many more pounds of steak, many more pounds of uh, flour, sugar, coffee, tea, whatever. So food prices have declined. Uh, your own colleague, Mark Perry, who is mm-hmm. on uh, the board of Human Progress, calculates uh, food prices, electronics, uh, and what have you, and uh, they have all fallen, uh, since Mark started tracking this data back in uh, the late 1990s, the two right. big exceptions are, of course, healthcare and education, and we can right. and childcare. So three, and we can talk about that in a moment. Not even housing is more expensive because it's keeping up with inflation. Mm-hmm. The only three big expenditures that an American has to face in his or her life uh, that are growing faster than inflation is. Uh, uh, education, healthcare, and childcare. But anyway, so so let's put that uh, on one side. You've asked me. People don't know the numbers, but you've mm-hmm. asked me. Uh, do I have a theory? Mm-hmm. So I try to engage with what I think are the most important criticisms from the left and from the right. From mm-hmm. the left, it is uh, 
climate change, global warming, we can discuss that later. On the right, what I think is what, what they call the crisis of meaning. Mm -hmm. Now, we have to separate meaning from happiness. Happiness is what you feel momentarily right now. Maybe you've got to pay a rise, you feel happy, whatever. Um, meaning is, uh, is a long-term proposition. It's about what you think you are doing on earth. And I've come to believe that everybody needs to have some sort of a meaning in mm -hmm. their lives. Now, that's become uh, a little more difficult recently for a number of reasons. Uh, one is the decline of traditional religion. Mm -hmm. um, second is um, uh, the uh, decline of the American nuclear family. Mm -hmm. And uh, third is of course what your own colleague Nick Eberstadt talks about when he when he when he mentions lack of uh, work mm -hmm. on the part of a substantial number of uh, uh, perfectly physically capable men mm -hmm. um, who just given up on work. So I think that the crisis of meaning, and we don't have any data, but and meaning is very hard to measure too. precisely. <laughs> yeah, and we don't have long term data. It's very difficult to measure, but. Anecdotal evidence suggests that uh, people are finding it very difficult to – more people are finding it difficult to cope with, uh, um, uh, with life where all of these permanent anchors have been pulled out. Right. And, um, and people like Clay Routledge, who was recently at Cato, he's a uh, cognitive scientist, and people like Michael Schallenberger, mm -hmm. the environmentalist, they have pointed out that – you know, when you have a decline of traditional religion, and here I'm speaking as an atheist, but mm -hmm. when you have a decline of traditional religion, usually what tends to happen is that the vacuum gets filled by something else, maybe secular religions, maybe extremist mm -hmm. um, extremist viewpoints. and Sometimes and, politics. And, right? or, I mean, or, Michael Burley, he argued that almost all of the um, major political movements of the 20th and 19th century were basically substitutes for religious fights that predated them. Mm -hmm. um, so you would – so looking at, for example, many of our liberal friends uh, – well, liberal, well, you and I are liberal. Right, um, right. Progressive <laughs> looking friends. At, looking at our <laughs> progressive friends, um, they, they do – I mean politics, American politics consumes their lives. Right. And uh, you could so, – so I think that there is something to it. I'm not sure how to – I'm not sure how to handle it. Yeah. So I think there are a lot of different – people on the right making different versions of these arguments, and some are more defensible than others. Um, Patrick Deneen, to his credit, is more honest about what he really means, and he basically just thinks the founding was in error, right? He thinks, you know, there's it's amazing how many people just have decided that John Locke screwed us all somehow. It's like he was the, that the, the it, it's sort of a, it's a, retelling of the fall of man that begins with the second treatise on government or something. And I think that, you know, people like Deneen would argue that we've learned the price of everything, but not, but the value of nothing. Right. And that we like people like you and me were crap. We're basically right wing <laughs> Marxists in a sense or materialists, because all we're doing is reducing the quality of people's lives to their stuff rather than the stuff that gives them a sense of meaning and belonging and and purpose and all of that. And I get the critique and I think it's a real issue. Uh, but I'm with you on this is that 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 that's not I mean, Schumpeter's predictions about why capitalism will fail. We can put aside for a second, even though I have some sympathy for them. 
The real problem is the loss, the, the, the erosion of these institutions, which give us a sense of meaning and belonging. Yeah. And we can become alienated and deracinated and all of that kind of stuff. But those can be replenished and fixed in a free society. And, and the great thing about a free society is that it allows you know, the individual – the pursuit of happiness is an individual right. And one person's definition of a meaningful life is another person's definition of hell. There are people – whose entire life is derived – the meaning of their life is derived from the fact that they were Marines and it was a matter of honor and duty and they're incredibly proud of it and they should be. There are other people that would be nothing but miserable. They would consider it a, for, a form of slavery to be a Marine and that's fine. You can ha In a free society, the people who want to be Marines can be Marines and the people who don't, don't. Part of my problem with these sort of post-liberal crowd is that they have a notion – of how everybody else should live and that somehow the state should be imposing that on people. And that, that – it's one thing to say this society doesn't provide the meaning that I want. It's another thing to say that this society doesn't provide the kind of meaning other people should have. And that's the illiberal part that I really can't embrace in any way. Yeah, I mean two points on that I think. One is that it is always e easier or it should be easier to search for meaning – on a on a full stomach, yeah, <laughs> and not crying over the grave of a of a six months old daughter or right. a son. So modernity allows you to search for meaning in ways that would have been unimaginable to our ancestors, who may have been forced to re, uh, to repeat phrases in a church they didn't like mm. or for a religion that they didn't believe in, and so on and so forth. So I, I think that on balance, it is much better to be. Prosperous, even mm. if even if uh, you may be facing some some crisis of meaning, but um, then we have to ask ourselves: What are we doing in order to ensure that people whose lives may have been uh, uh, negatively influenced by globalization and competition, mm -hmm. um, say for example those dying communities in West Virginia or Kentucky that uh, that Ron speaks so eloquently mm -hmm. and writes about. What are we doing in order to, to help them? Is it really better to supply them with uh, an endless stream of a uh, little bit of cash mm -hmm. in food stamps and social support? Or should we return to an America where mobility is paramount and where these people can move out of the dying communities into places where there are jobs available and find meaning uh, in, in work. Um, I hear a lot of criticism about how libertarianism has failed America. But to well, the, you've been running everything for the because, last 20 years. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, 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 yeah. George Bush and Barack Obama have, you know, two, uh, two closeted libertarians. But um, our licensing uh, regimes, are they optimal? Uh, I would say that we have far too much licensing, occupational licensing, which uh, prevents people from finding work. Um, social welfare um, gives people free money, but it also keeps them in areas uh, where maybe they, they shouldn't be, maybe they should move on. Um, so, yes, there are fundamental changes happening as a result of economic um, globalization and economic competition. There are large parts of the country which are suffering. You and I are human beings who care about our fellow Americans and we want to find the best way out. And I just don't think that we are going to help 
ordinary people by uh, keeping them in this, uh, uh, keeping them essentially trapped in a in a in a destructive welfare system. It's the same argument that conservatives used to make about the black family mm. and uh, the the black minority in the 1980s and into the 1990s. Get off welfare, get a job. We should apply the same standards to white underclass, to poor whites, and help them to get a job. Mm. Yeah, so um, just for listener clarification, Marion mentioned Ron, who writes about these communities in Kentucky and West Virginia. I don't think we explained on air who Ron is. Ron is one of my oldest and dearest friends. I used to work for him, and then I worked with him for years. He's a science reporter for Reason, and you and Ron are working on a book on a lot of these themes together. And um, my only reluctance about having you on was that I really want to get Ron in here, in part because I love making fun of Ron. <laughs> <laughs> well, you can have him when the book comes yeah, out, no, then I you will. can you can you uh, can talk. But uh, Ron and I have back before I became much more sympathetic to libertarianism, we used to have some wonderful arguments about libertarianism versus conservatism, and uh, he's one of my favorite people, so just want to get it yeah. out there. Um, uh, so the you mentioned before, you know, the, the left has this response to the challenges of modernity, and one of them is global warming. We can talk about that. I'm happy to talk about that. But the, the other one, which I thought you were going to mention, which you didn't, was inequality, mm -hmm. right? And that is one of the only things... Like when I, when I explain to audiences what I was trying to do with my book, I say, look, I'm, I'm trying to argue with progressives on their own terms. And that's why the first sentence of the book is there's no God in this book, yeah. right? Is because if I make an appeal to the Almighty to explain all of this is because God says so, I win no converts, right? It's just, and, and it's a, the way I always explain it is if I'm, if you ask a progressive person, why do you have the politics that you have? What do you think government should do? The things that most of the things they say, uh, education, protecting the environment, fighting poverty, uh, promoting literacy, promoting public health. My argument is that liberal democratic capitalism is the best system for achieving those ends. doesn't mean there can't be role for some regulation, there are externalities and yada, yada. But we know that statism isn't great at doing those things. But one of the only ones I'll ever concede that market the market order is not great at fixing is inequality because inequality is a subjective thing we don't define poverty objectively anymore if we did define if we took the standard of how you define poverty from even a hundred years ago literally everybody is a millionaire yeah. <laughs> um um or all i mean maybe not homeless people but you know we're the average, even lower... Poor households have cars and refrigerators right. and air conditioning and so forth, televisions, needless right. to say. Yeah. Poor people in this country, poor people who have jobs in this country, have things that whole villages in India don't have. Yeah. And I'm not saying that we should have an objective definition of poverty, right? Because progress, part and part of what's invest, inherent in the idea of progress is a moving target of the minimally acceptable lifestyle uh, life conditions. Well, on that, don't you worry that uh, we may end up in a situation where the minimum moves up so high that a large chunk of the population may decide, well, um, the minimum is good enough. Um, you know, it pays for uh, 
it fa- pays for the one-bedroom apartment. It pays for electricity and the internet. Um, and what else do I need? Um, I, I, I worry about it. That seems like a byproduct yeah. of – that seems like a symptom of the loss of meaning, right? Where – I mean one of the reasons that I think you have this small group in total terms of young men who are so alienated from the culture is that you can get senses of a, – a sense of satisfaction from being really good at Call of Duty, mm-hmm. right? And playing video – sort of sort – of a brave new world understanding of things where if you just if you're high and you're playing video games and it's okay you lose the ambition to be more than what you currently are. I worry about that but that's a cultural problem I think my point is or at least what I'm talking about is I have no problem with the idea that poverty is a moving target and that there will always be wealth inequality in a free market order in part because People choose different – if you're choosing different sources of meaning and the one – put it this way. If you're choosing a source of meaning to be a professional basketball player and you can succeed at doing that, you're going to make more money than a person who chooses to be a science teacher. I don't know how you fix that and I don't know that that's something that should be fixed, right? I mean because freedom is going to have unequal results. The The thing I worry about – and I remember you put on a conference at Cato that talked about this, about the sort of evolutionary psychology aspects of socialism. And the what makes arguing about inequality so frustrating is that it is – I would argue that a big chunk of it is based on a natural human instinct to dislike other members of the tribe having more resources mm-hmm. than we do, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, who is um, – one of the woman um, – Lita Cosmides? Lita Cosmides, yeah. yeah. She made this point is that we have two sort of algorithms in our heads – one, that come from our tribal nature. One is that we really dislike people who share resources that they didn't put in the work for. And that's sort of the takers stuff. You know, the conservatives used to talk a lot about this. You know, they're the makers and the takers, welfare queens, whatever label you want to put on them. And we feel like they're they're mooching because they're not putting in the work that everybody else in the tribe is putting in to kill a mastodon or collect firewood or whatever it is. But then there's the other side of it. It's the people who put in the work, but they get wildly outsized portions of the rewards. And that's what the left focuses on in terms of the billionaire class who just are living off of the rest and exploiting the rest of us. And what worries me is that that's, that is a permanent part of our brains. Yes. And if you don't civilize people in these institutions and give them and you don't educate them about the larger importance of the system and how it works and all the rest – that sort of thinking kicks into overdrive and helps people motivates people to undermine the system itself. Does that make any sense to you? Sure, yeah. sure, sure. I, I, I get what you're asking. Um, there, there are limits as far as I'm go. Uh, I'm willing to go to seed the um, uh, the linguistic territory and the intellectual high ground mm-hmm. to the left. Mm-hmm. I have my issues with uh, the science behind global warming, but I accept it, right. and I play on the ground that was set for me by the left, and I'm trying to find techno-optimistic solutions to the problem of global warming. Uh, similarly, on the right, I accept the anecdotal evidence, uh, as shown very clearly by mass shooters, for example, that there is a problem of meaning, even though the long-term data on this subject is actually missing. Right. When it comes to income inequality, I have a, 
I just have a massive problem with it. I don't see income inequality as being a legitimate subject of the discussion about human progress. Mm -hmm. Because so long as everybody is moving forward, uh, to me, it, it, it is irrelevant, broadly speaking, irrelevant whether somebody is moving at a speed of 10 miles an hour hour, and somebody is moving at a speed of 100 uh, miles an hour. I don't understand why we focus on income inequality as opposed to, for example, inequality of intellect, inequality of beauty, uh, inequality of strength, uh, thousands of different inequalities where individuals differ and derive uh, benefits uh, in life. So I don't understand why we have to just focus on income inequality uh, unless the argument is, which I think is accepted by everyone, that if you become filthy rich by screwing your customers uh, and doing it in an illegal or unethical way, then the society can step in and fix the problem. But the fact that Bezos is worth $160 billion and um, Bill Gates is not far behind him with $100 billion, uh, that has no effect on me because I have gotten from them much more than they have gotten from me right and then uh, just to just last comment on this you probably have seen the debate at the Peterson Institute this week between Larry Summers and Emmanuel Saez. No, I didn't. Well, Emmanuel Saez is the uh, intellectual guru of the of the Warren campaign. Uh, he's the guy who is arguing for the wealth tax. Mm-hmm. Now, Larry Summers was on the podium with him, and the argument that Saez was making is that people who are very wealthy have a disproportionate impact on politics, mm-hmm. right? It's not just that they have better lives, which just doesn't worry me. You know, right. uh, Bill Gates may be $100 billion. I may be worth $100,000, but but Bill Gates cannot eat food that is 100 million times better. Right. He cannot fly to places 100 million times faster and what have you. So the argument on the left now is that rich people shouldn't be rich and we shouldn't have billionaires because they exercise massive impact on the political Sphere And so Larry Summers, who is also a progressive, Mm -hmm. has laid into this guy and said to him, can you give me one example of a rich person who would affect American politics less by being 20 percent poorer? Mm -hmm. I mean, if uh, Bezos was worth only $100 billion and if we took half of Bill Gates' wealth away from him, from $100 billion to $50 billion – Probably what would happen is that they would put all that money that they wouldn't let the government take it, but they would they would they would diffuse that money amongst the causes that they feel most strongly about, and therefore their impact on the American society would actually be greater. greater. Yeah. Um, certainly, in case of Bill Gates, his immense wealth didn't save him from the Clinton uh, administration uh, uh, trying to destroy and break up his company. So I really. Don't want to cede the, uh, the the intellectual high ground to the left by uh, being too worried about income inequality. So long as people earn their money in a, a legal and ethical way, I'm fine with that. Yeah, no, I I agree with that entirely. I I care a lot about making poor people richer. I don't care at all about making rich people poorer. <laughs> and the idea that somehow, I mean, there is a subtle sort of cons- tra- you know old-fashioned conservative sort of a Tory point about for the sake of social peace there needs to be a sense in which the poor people poor people aren't truly being left behind mm-hmm. 
And I get that. I just, I've never been convinced of what actual policies that I would agree with flow from that observation. I mean, it, it's, it's not like we live in some stereotypical banana republic where it's truly just a couple elite groups of elites and everyone else is peasants. Um, there's a lot more churn in the economy. There's a lot more stuff going on. And the idea of tearing down the rich, it, it feels this – this is why I brought up evolutionary psychology. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, uh, it, it feels much – it's yep. much more uh, a, a, a psychological sweet tooth thing about a desire for a sort of vengeance or bringing people down or envy than it is a coherent public policy argument. And right. that's what worries me. Right. So you, you, you evolve in a small group of people with a finite amount of resources. And therefore, you know that if Jonah has more women and more food than I do, then his chances of procreation right. and, and, and furthering his gene pool are much higher than mine. Therefore, I'm going to pull him down. I'm going to create an alliance with a fellow unlucky person. I'm going to pull you down. But then I'm going to start doing exactly what you have done. I'm right. going to try to monopolize as many resources as possible until my time comes. Um, so, uh, so yes, it is, it is internalized in, in our brains. Now, what to do about it? Well, part of the reason has to do with um, the, the cultural superstructure in mm -hmm. a way. Uh, for example, it is not it shouldn't we should never encounter a situation where a crazy rich kid will burn a hundred dollar note uh, in order to prove how much money he or she has right people for example shouldn't flaunt their wealth um you know in as as people didn't used to really right now, of course social media makes it so much more difficult but whether people flaunt their wealth or not really depends very much on their upbringing, the moral values that they have. And um, if if that sort of behavior, that sort of noblesse oblige, but also just, an, just, just normal decency, if that's no longer taught uh, to children because, after all, there is no moral code that we can all subscribe to, yeah? Right. Anything goes. Everything is relative. Well, if that's the case... Um, then we have a problem. Um, whereas I think that normal, decent behavior being taught by our institutions could actually help us by recreating that 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 moral superstructure, um, so that putting the rich kids aside, uh, that maybe the guy on the Wall Street who is about to make a hundred billion dollar trade. Uh, which he knows is wrong, or right. he's betting against uh, against advice that he's given to his uh, to his investors, that maybe he should know internally that I shouldn't do that uh, because it's just bad morals. Mm. And I just have a sense that uh, in an age of moral relativism, uh, we no longer have uh, that kind of overarching moral superstructure, and it's a problem. On the other hand, um, and this is the good part, the second point, um, is that a lot of rich people leave leave the money behind and very often to put them to good use. Mm -hmm. uh, this is true of the much maligned, unrightly maligned robber barons like uh, Carnegie and uh, 
and and Ford and Vanderbilt and what have you established great institutions. Carnegie, I think, built three thousand libraries in right. America. Um, Rockefeller, of course, built a couple of universities and things like that. But today, uh, our own mega billionaires are spending their money in a very often in a fantastic way. I mean, yeah. Bill Gates uh, is doing marvelous job uh, trying to uh, bring sanitation to the poorest uh, parts of the world, supporting research, very important research on malaria and so forth. So um, I don't know if you saw it, but I, I, you know, I'm in the bit of a intellectual tongue war with some of the people around First Things and Rusty Reno, the editor of First Things, who's given up on the what what he calls the conservative consensus, which is basically giving up on a big chunk of liberal democratic capitalism. Uh, a big part of his, one of his policy proposals for this new post-liberal Catholic integralist nationalist miasma he proposes is to cap, a, put a lifetime cap on the amount of money billionaires can put into the philanthropy because it distorts public policy. And he says, for example, the Gates Foundation is monopolizing public health systems in Africa, and that's a violation of the national sovereignty of the African people. And it just strikes me as a very weird thing, particularly for a Catholic, to get – and Catholicism is not historically all that bound up in nationalism to begin with, right? Catholic means universal. Yes. But to think that, like, this is where capitalism really goes off the rails when these – Hugely rich people are out there spending their money to save the lives of poor African kids. It's very strange where this stuff takes people. And um, um, anyway, it's just an aside because I just find it fascinating, the obsessions that some of these people get into. But we don't have to dwell on that. So, I mean, you were you were brought here to be less gloomy. But basically, you are coming around to the suicide portion of Suicide of the West, which is that we are present we as a society are presented with this choice either we sort of hold on to what Deirdre McCloskey would call bourgeois values which help regulate you know the non-state functions of a market economy and all that or we will lose the will to sustain a market economy and this sort of gets to like one of my great peeves uh, it was Charles Murray who first said that the problem with our elites is they refuse to preach what they practice yes right we have most forget billionaires but even billionaires our rich people they tend to do they tend to live pretty bourgeois lives mm -hmm. they they work hard they educate their kids they they delay gratification they they save uh, they save money the the divorce crisis among elites ended about 25 years ago they may not go to church or synagogue as much as you know they might have in a previous generation but they live pretty bourgeois lives mm -hmm. the one thing they will not do is tell other people that they should live bourgeois lives too even though that is the the success that success sequence thing about staying in school wait until you get married before you have kids pretty much guarantees not fabulous wealth but it's a great hedge against poverty and that seems to me the major cultural problem we have in this country today is that everyone's so terrified of saying you know, this is actually is a superior way of living. Yes. Um, and I don't know how you fix that. I certainly don't know how the folks at Cato are going to fix that because they don't like telling people how to live. But um, um, well, I'm very Hayekian. Yeah. Hayek understood that uh, freedom had to exist uh, within a certain uh, 
moral tradition, if you mm-hmm. will. Uh, I think that uh, Vernon Smith makes the point that uh, – uh, Adam Smith's uh, Wealth of Nations is, after all, his second book, his first book on right. um, moral sentiments, which sets up the moral framework within which capitalism ought to work. Right. So, so the great thinkers of the past always understood that uh, um, that the two go hand in hand. Um, Progress, as you know and you've pointed out, is not guaranteed that this is not some sort of a French rationalistic um, attitude where we are going to – or viewpoint that we are somehow going to reach a utopia. We have to defend uh, progress every day. How do we do do that? Well, increasingly I'm very interested in this notion of intra-elite competition for status Mm -hmm. and – uh, I wonder if the reason why um, the elite, the, the liberal elite, doesn't preach what they live is because in the popular uh, mind, uh, in our bifurcated society, it is the Republicans who are supposed to be the defenders of the mm-hmm. bourgeois values, right? Mm-hmm. And because the Republicans are supposed to be the, the supporters of the bourgeois values, uh, liberals must be perceived to be on the other side mm-hmm. of the barricade. That's a good point. And um, uh, therefore, even though their personal lives are really not all that different from conservative personal lives when it comes, again, to those very important uh, features such as family life, saving, investment, education, and so on and so forth, conscientiousness at work um, – they cannot bring themselves to say it because then they will sound like Republicans. And, right. uh, and, and, and so we have this problem where we have two elites, um, mostly, let's face it, rich white people, mm-hmm. uh, but uh, who are on the opposite side of the barricade. And they are, they are striving for social status by basically pulling the other down. Mm-hmm. That's my analysis. I, yeah, no, I, I'm very. I, I've been thinking along the same lines for a while now. I mean, I, I'm, you know, I don't want to get back into Schumpeter, but people who listen to this podcast know I'm kind of obsessed with some of that new class stuff. But it, what you're saying kind of ties into some one of my criticisms of of nationalism. Uh, my friend Rich Lowry, we've already recorded a podcast with him where he talks about his new book, and one of the points. I make is very similar to that is that if one party claims to be the nationalist party, or let's say the patriotic party, because of negative polarization, the other party says, well, that's their word. So I can't embrace mm-hmm. it. And part of the problem you get when you politicize society as much as we have is that if one side is for X, the other side has to be against X. Yeah. So the second you make something political, you naturally create an opposition to it. Yep. Which is why in a healthier society, you know, this is, this is, this is, um, it's, it's screwed the environmentalist movement when Al yeah. Gore became the face of environmentalism. Right. Uh, yeah. Because then the Republicans felt we have to do everything against it. Yeah. But no, anyways, that's right. So, yeah. So it was like Ron Bailey used yeah. to always say libertarianism is only a partial philosophy of life. And, I've been saying that about conservatism too. This is a wonderful line in Oakshot where he says, you can be a conservative in the realm of politics and it has no, there's no reason why it has to have any bearing on the other things that you're, that 
that you're involved in. You can be a radical in music or art or whatever, but you have this sort of conservative orientation towards the political. And the problem is, is that we no longer have these firewalls between different parts of our lives. And so politics becomes a unitary theory of life. And your politics are supposed to dictate what you eat, what pop culture you like, mm -hmm. um, what you read, who you marry, all of these sorts of things. And that, I think, is just a profoundly unhealthy thing for the society because you lose any of that sort of – any of this – a lot of the stuff that was supposed to be the cultural moral consensus that regardless of what party you belong to, mm -hmm. everybody agreed in. And I don't know how you unwind that except through federalism. But Well, that, that I, was, I was about to say that um, is that you – let me get at the same point from from a different perspective. Um, a lot of people have pointed out that people are much crueler to one another on Twitter mm -hmm. than they are in face to face interaction. Yeah. I'm not on Twitter. I'm not on Facebook. Left those a uh, long time ago uh, for the sake of uh, sanity. You be the judge if I'm succeeding or not. But uh, but uh, I mean, listeners should know you were actually wearing full medieval body armor, uh -huh. and I haven't commented on it at all. <laughs> but <laughs> anyway, go ahead. Uh, so face to face interaction and. Um, um, there is actually a country which functions relatively well, in fact, very well, uh, which is constituted of four different language groups, uh, two or three uh, religions that for hundreds of years have been at each other's throats, and that country is Switzerland. Mm -hmm. Now, it has a very uh, devolved power structure where at a local level, people can make a lot of decisions right. uh, in their communities. Then they take it up to the level of the canton and eventually it goes to the federal level. But the federal level uh, has a very limited number of responsibilities. I right. think there are only seven members of the Swiss governing council, which is their government. The president changes every year. Uh, and uh, I think it only spends something like 12% uh, of the um, uh, of the tax revenue. I could be wrong on that, but, it, yeah. but it's certainly smaller than the cantonal level and the municipal level. So where am I heading with this? Is that, of course, if you have a constantly increasing monopolization of power in Washington, D.C., which decides for the rest of the country, in a country which is as diverse as we are, along linguistic, ethnic, racial, religious grounds, this is going to lead to conflict. Right. You can have a powerful centralized government in a state where people look and think and behave in pretty much the same way. Think of Norway or Sweden. Right. But in a country which is, which is as diverse as ours – and I hate that word. I've become, come to hate that <laughs> word because it's such a prog word to say. But, uh, but, but if you think about the diversity of this country, obviously, uh, monopolization of power at the center is going to make many people mad. Right. And so let's return as many. I, I cannot think of very many issues that are, that are driving Americans crazy that couldn't be solved by the, through a return to the wisdom of the founding fathers. And if those issues could be conducted at a local level or a state level. Right. Can, can you think of many? I mean, I mean, there, there are going to be, you know, I do all these talks on college campuses about federalism and, you know, you always, in part because kids are taught from a very early age that when you say federalism, you mean states' rights. And when you mean states' rights, you mean Jim Crow, oh, right? Yeah. And so you always have to you have to always head that off at the past. Head them off at the past? 
I hate that cliche. And say, hey, look, that's not an option. You know, I mean, Fourteenth Amendment remains yeah. the Federal Bureau of Investigation. Yeah, I mean, yeah. we 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 fought a civil war. We amended the Constitution a yeah. couple times. We had the Civil Rights Revolution. We're not going back to that, nor should we want to go back to that. And anybody who talks about federalism who means that is a jackass. And but that's not what ninety percent of the people who talk about this mean anymore. And in fact, it's like it's it's you know, I don't know, but I get the sense that the sort of the actual recrudescent, you know, racist swamp dwellers, you know, the alt-right types, I don't think they like federalism anymore. They want to impose power from above on their terms. And, um, but there are some questions that go to the very heart of what it means to be a citizen or even a human, right? So slavery had to be settled at the federal level. Yeah. Uh, you can make that argument of abortion, whichever way you come down. But for almost everything else, if you send power down to the most local level possible, you let more people live the way they want to live and you have people actually have to adjudicate things face to face. That's right. They have real budgets right. with real taxes attached. It's not the federal government printing money. Uh, you have uh, – um, you know the people that you're arguing with. You're probably going to have dinner with them once a week. Right. So you or might you're going to well. see them at your kid's soccer game yeah. or at the supermarket. and. Yeah. And so I think about this a lot these days. I mean, this has been a hobby horse of mine for a long time. But, you know, the analogy I always use is, you know, in 1600s England, the public policies were secondary, tertiary, or non-existent. But if you thought, if you were Catholic, the prospect of having a Protestant on the throne was terrifying mm -hmm. and vice versa because the, the, the throne and the king was an avatar for your most deeply held sources of meaning and, and belonging and the kind of country you wanted to live in. That's what we're turning presidents into. Yeah. And so like the Democratic primaries, you have Elizabeth Warren vowing all sorts of illegal, unconstitutional or impossible things because what it is is it's it's a demonstration of what your priorities are if you were on the throne. It doesn't The policy implications don't – the policy follow-through is a distant afterthought. Everyone is virtue signaling. And – Virtue signaling is sort of like declaring you're a Catholic or a Protestant in the 1600s. And that's a real problem. And if you could – that's why I'm so envious of Switzerland. My understanding is that they do polls and a big chunk of the Swiss don't know the name of the president. I think that's awesome. <laughs> and there was a fantastic story. I mean, did you see this story a few years ago? There was – in Switzerland, local communities have the final say about whether or not you can become a citizen. Yes. And so there was some woman who'd lived there as a legal resident for I, I decades. I think it's the first say before federal federal level is the last one. Oh, that's it, right. Yeah, it, it starts at the local. Oh, that's level. right. And so basically, the people who live with this person have to say, "Yeah, we want her to live here as a Swiss." And and there was this horrible woman. I don't know, maybe too pejorative. I mean, maybe she's great in her soul, but like she was constantly starting up petitions to get rid of cowbells on cows in their little village that had a tradition of cows for 500 years or whatever. And she was a crazy vegan and doing all these things. And people just thought she was a huge pain in the ass. So after 20 years of, of living there, she applied for citizenship and they're like, nope, <laughs> we don't, we're not going to approve it. And I, I, I love that. I mean, it's, that's not entirely workable in a country of 300 X million people, but the principle of letting people have as much control over their own communities as possible, so long as you respect basic civil rights, seems to me so incandescently obvious a better way to go. But all the trends are going the other way. I don't know how many 
progressive friends you have. I have a I have quite a few, uh, having been in D.C. for the last 17 years, and basically everybody I encounter, so it seems, is a, is a progressive. Um, I, I recommend misanthropy because you, you, you avoid those kinds of problems. <laughs> and I keep asking them. So I was at dinner a couple of months ago, and I asked this friend of mine, um, um, Scott, you know, did the Trump presidency change your mind about the power of the executive? Mm-hmm. In other words, can you now see the point that I've been making to you for for years is that by having a very strong president and a very powerful federal government, when it falls into the hands of the person that you truly despise, uh, it can come and literally bite you in the ass. Yeah. And the amazing thing is that no matter how many times I ask this question of my progressive friends, the answer is always essentially what it boils down to is is that Trump is an anomaly. Mm-hmm. Twenty twenty will fix everything, and uh, you know the, the right. power will now be in the hands of the right people forever and ever and ever. And they are not buying into the argument for the need to re- to to revert uh, powers of the federal government back to the states. That is literally the best argument I've heard for reelecting Donald. Trump. Uh- <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, Marion Tupi, thank you so much for coming on board. I uh, can't wait for your book to come out in 2020 with Ron Bailey, who many of his friends call him Beetle, as you know. And um, the website that people should check out is humanprogress.org. Uh, thanks so much for coming on. My pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. We have people banging on the door to take over the studio, so I can't ask Jack how his life is going. Thanks to everybody who subscribes. Thanks to everybody who spreads the word about this, the dispatch, the G-file, the David French newsletter, the morning dispatch and soon to be many more podcasts and newsletters, and and come January, a new website. And uh, um, if you get a chance to review us for all the various places where you get your wonderful podcasts, that would be wonderful. But word of mouth is even more important, and we're really grateful to the support that we've gotten from everybody. Jack, you seem raring to say something. Keep talking. Uh, (laughs) um, So... Uh, that's it for today. Thanks to Marion Tupi for coming in and the folks at Human Progress, and I'll see you next time. Release the Kraken. Um, Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.